Lord, we do um, invite your Holy Spirit to make his presence known because we desire to hear your voice through the scriptures and he inspired the scriptures. We desire our hearts to be changed and you're the one who transforms us. We desire to look more like Jesus and it's the Holy Spirit's work in our life as um, his fruits are expressed in us that we begin to look more like our Lord and Savior. So um, make us attentive to your voice, Holy Spirit. Um, attune our hearts so that we cooperate with the work that you desire to do, so that we be the kind of people that um, you desire us to be, which is to look more like Jesus. And then give us the words to speak, words of um, praise to you, uh, encouragement to one another, and words of truth and grace to the world around us so that um, the whole world would know that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior. Amen. As a lot of people pointed out, today is Pentecost Sunday, and it's one of the feast days of the church that, at least in our traditions, um, we tend to notice less, right? Because, frankly, we've just finished Christmas and Easter, it feels like. It's only been 50 days uh, or so since Easter. And those are the big holidays where you learn about who what it means to be Jesus and who he was. But I want to suggest that Pentecost Sunday tells us what it means to be the church, right? And so for those of us who need a quick refresher, Pentecost Sunday is uh, described really in Acts 2 for the church when the Holy Spirit manifests in that early church as it empowers the church to fulfill its vocation which you see lived out in Acts 2, which is to declare who Jesus Christ is to the nations because they're given the ability to speak into the heart language of the people around them. And what's fascinating, of course, is not that everybody understood Aramaic or Greek in a particularly new way, but the Lord gave them the ability to speak so that everybody could hear the good news about Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit worked through the church, not only did they have a word to speak, but they actually became the kind of community that was magnetic because they cared for one each other's needs. They met together around um, the communion table in order to remember who Jesus was. And in their word and in their deed, people said, there's something distinctive about that community that can only be explained by a risen Savior, and we want to be a part of it. And so thousands began to come to faith throughout Jerusalem. What's fascinating, to me at least, is that in Jewish tradition, Pentecost Sunday obviously was a, um, a harvest festival where people would come to bring their offerings to God. But later in Jewish tradition, it became celebrated as the day um, where the Lord manifested at Sinai and gave his law to the people of Israel to constitute them as his people. Because it's at Sinai, um, Israel discovered its vocation to be a witness to the nations and to be a distinctive community that honored God. And so I think of it as um, both uh, Dick's incredible wisdom um, and also a great fortuitous meeting of events that on this Pentecost Sunday, um, we're not in Acts 2, but we're at Exodus 19, which is where the people of Israel have now come to Sinai. And God is about to speak to them. And God is about to give his law to them. And God is about to give them and call them to this vocation that he has for them to be lived out so to declare his glory among the nations. Um, we're at the Old Testament Pentecost text in many ways, according to rabbinic tradition. And how does this text begin? It begins by this firm assertion, God has saved us. And what you're going to notice about this text is how it's all about God's initiative. So 
It's a reminder, God has saved the people of Israel. Look again at verses 1 through 5. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert or the wilderness the un- of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of that mountain. Then Moses went up to the Lord, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Right? Notice how the text reminds the people of Israel and its readers of God's covenant promises in the past and how he's fulfilled them in the present. Right? Almost every line of this first five verses does that. We're reminded of the journey that they've been on with that small phrase after the Israelites left Egypt. But if you'd been reading the book of Exodus or hearing it or living it, yeah, we left Egypt, but it wasn't quiet and it wasn't simple. God rescued us with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. He defeated the deities, the Egyptians. He demonstrated his mastery over land and earth and sea and air over the Everything on the earth, the greatest empire the Israelites had known has crumbled in front of the Lord as he marched them out of Israel. God has provided for their every need on this three-month journey. This is no small salvation, but God saved them out of captivity and is bringing them to a new place and a new land. But the author of Exodus just puts it down as, well, you know, after the Israelites left Egypt. But all of that should fill our minds. God promised he would save them, and he did. And now he's brought them to the mountain where he promised uh, Moses, I'm going to send you, and after I rescue you, I'm going to bring you back to this very mountain where you first met me. And so God is fulfilling his promises to um, Moses. I'm going to bring you back to the place where this started, and he has. And then God addresses them. This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. And he intentionally, I think, invokes right, the names of the patriarchs to remind them, I made a promise to Jacob that your people would sojourn in in Egypt for a long period of slavery, but I would bring them out. I will bring them back to a land that will flow with milk and honey. I will make them from a small family of 70 or so people into a great nation that nobody could count. I, the Lord, am doing this. And he reminds them in just that small phrase, tell those that multitude of descendants of Jacob that the promises, the covenant I made to Jacob is now being fulfilled. And it's in the context of those covenant promises, right, to Abraham that they'd be a mighty nation, to Jacob that he'd bring his family back out of Egypt after they had multiplied and grown strong, the promise that he made to Moses that you'll save the people out of Egypt and bring them here, that God says it's in that context that I describe my saving action as this, I was like an eagle and I lifted you up. You did nothing to save yourself. You were like a desperate, well, this is, the, this is where the uh, mixed metaphor starts to break down, but we'll just take it for a moment, right? I snatched you out of the claws of the Egyptians like an eagle snatches um, prey because you could do nothing to save yourself. And I dropped from the sky and plucked you out, and all you could do is cling there. Now, the problem, of course, is the eagles tend to um, eat the bunnies, and so that's a terrible image at one level. But (laughs) if any of you are fans of the Lord of the Rings, 
Great. Okay. I love the gasps, right? Because, I, the, right. Um, or fans of The Hobbit, what you know is that when um, Tolkien runs out of ways to save his heroes, the eagles come. Right, and there's that great scene, if you've watched the movie, if you've read the book, where Sam and um, Frodo are literally about to be consumed by lava, right? And then the eagles come out of nowhere. And, and Tolkien was a Christian thoroughly steeped in the scriptures. And I think what comes to mind for him is this text, right? I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. And I think he applies that metaphor because the eagles, throughout Tolkien's... Um, Imaginary world are always signs of somehow the gods intervening to save. And he says, it's terrible that we have to compare scripture to the Lord of the Rings, but I think you see why, right? It's just like you were about to be consumed by the lava from Mount Doom, but like an eagle, I snatched you away from all of that. And all you had to do was lay there limply and allow me to carry you to safety, Israel. Right? This text begins with the, the assertion, God has made a covenant to the patriarchs. And he says, I will save you, I will redeem you, I will bring you to this place. And in this passage, God says, I am fulfilling that right now. Every promise I've made to you is now coming true, Israel. And there's more. Because then he says, not only have I saved you, but now let me define who you will be now that I have saved you from out of Israel, because I mean, out of Egypt. Because when you were in Egypt, you were slaves. When you were in Egypt, you were foreigners and aliens. When you were in Egypt, at best, you were widows and orphans. You had nothing. You were a nameless, abused people. And now let me, that I've saved you out of that, let me define who you are and what your vocation, what your calling will be. And look at how he does that in verses 5 to 6. God says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Right? God says, look, I've saved you. And if you'll respond to the gift that I've given you, then this is who you will be and what you will do. And he describes three things that they are to be and do. They are to be his treasured possession, they are to be a kingdom of priests, and they are to be a holy nation. And what these three convey, I think, is who we are and what we're about in the world for Israel, right? So if you're a king in the ancient Near East, literally you owned everything. And in Egypt, he owned almost everything. Um, but the language of you are my treasured possession means out of all the stuff that I have. Out of all the things that I own, you're the most special thing. The cattle on a thousand hills may be mine. Everything that has breath may be mine. Every people of the world belongs to me in the end, but you are the one that I love. And you are to be a kingdom of priests. Not just a kingdom of any kind of people, but you to be the unique people through whom I will declare my glory to the world. You are to be the people among whom I make myself known and allow you to have uh, fellowship with me. 
You will be the people who will declare the potential of mercy and forgiveness to the rest of the world, right? Because that's what priests did. Priests offered the sacrifices that allowed people to come before God. He says, you, as a people, will help people come to me. Priests were the people who ministered at the altar. They were the people who would stand on regular occasions at the Holy of Holies to be in God's presence. You're going to be the people who stand in front of my presence, unashamed and unafraid because my sacrifices that I've given you have taken care of your fear. You're going to know me and you're going to make me known as a community. And then God says, you're going to be a holy nation. You're going to be set apart. You're going to be distinct from me. Because I'm going to so transform you that when people look at you, they're going to say, there must be a God because he's doing something unique among this people. Right? What's Israel's vocation? It's to be God's treasured possession, to be a kingdom of priests, and to be a holy nation. They're to know that God delights in them. God is going to use them to, um, so that they know him and make him known, and they're going to be transformed by him. The great thing is that all of these continue to be applied to the people of God today. So that in the New Testament, this same language of being a kingdom of priests begins to be picked up. Peter uses it. Um, Revelation uses it with, to him who loves us and has freed us by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God forever. I don't even know if I'm quoting Revelation, uh, I think it's in five, or if I'm just singing that chorus that was very popular in the 80s in my head. It's probably both since the language is very similar. But it can, these promises continue to be applied from the people of Israel now to the people of God, his church. They continue to be true for us today. So part of what God says, look, I've saved you. And now look who I'm making you to be and what, what is your vocation. And when we talk about vocation, we so often reduce it to what's your job and what you do, which is incredibly important, right? Because I do think your jobs, your vocation is the primary place where you actually work out your discipleship. It's not just... Um, at a Bible study or a worship service. Here you get a little equipped and we give you information, but you actually work out whether you're a Christian or not, right? In the day-to-day -day work of your vocation, nine to five. You work it out in the vocation of your marriage. Will I be Christ-like now or not? Um, you get equipped here, but you got to work it out out there. And our vocation is to be his treasured possession, to be a kingdom and priest, and to be a holy nation. And I think if you know that, it transforms us. What does it mean for us to know that we're his treasured possession? Um, uh, the story that was coming to mind is if you know you're deeply loved, everything changes. Um, my daughter Madeline um, was asking me the other day as we were going to school, why do you always talk about love? And um, we were going down the elevator, and you know, I thought for a moment, and then I looked at my younger daughter, and because... Um, well, the only excuse is we, we listen to a lot of show tunes at home. We don't actually do a lot with hymns and choruses, but we do a lot with show tunes. And she'd ask the question, you know, why do you talk so much about love? And I looked at my younger daughter, and then we both burst out in this chorus, love, love changes everything. Hands and faces, earth and sky, which is from a little-known Andrew Lloyd Webber work. And then we laughed hysterically because we all went there at the same time. But I said, really, why do we talk about love? Because if you know you're loved, you can endure almost everything. When your friends reject you, when you failed at work, when you know you don't have uh, what it takes to move forward, when you're sick or ill, in the end, sometimes all you have is, I know God loves me. When I was um, uh, 
a first year legal associate, um, well actually it was during my summer um, internship as a law student, I remember a friend of mine turned to me and said, Craig, you're so bovine and complacent. <laughs> and I looked at her because I thought we were friends. And she says, bovine, that means cow-like, right? And I said, yes. And she said, well, you know, I like cows. And it was true. She had these little pewter cows that kind of gambled on her desk. But I'd never been compared to a cow before. And she said, well, all of us are running around like crazy people here. We're so afraid we're not going to get an offer. And if we don't get an offer at the end of the summer, we have to explain to the employer that we're seeking next, I wasn't considered good enough last summer to get a job, at least in that era of law firm life in the early 90s. And she said, and then there's you, quietly chewing your cud, doing your work, <laughs> wearing that crazy tie of yours. I, I, don't, I don't, why are you not more panicky? Now, I remember I, I thought, I have a choice here. I could just say, because I'm a calm, excellent person. Because <laughs> I know I'm good. But, you know, I, I said, this was a chance to witness. And I just said, look, um, I want this job. Right? I want to excel here. I want a job just as badly as you do because God knows I have a lot of debt I need to pay off. I said, but um, if I do not get this job, I know that my God still loves me. My family will be a little disappointed, but they're disappointed that I'm only a lawyer and not a doctor, so they're going to get over it, but they love me too. <laughs> my friends may laugh at me, but they do that all the time, but fundamentally my identity is not tied to whether I get this job or not. And Susan, I think, frankly, that frees me to serve with excellence and without fear. This panic doesn't promote excellence. And there was something about knowing how deeply loved I am by God that just sucked the anxiety out of the room for me. And to be God's treasured possession means he loves us. There's nothing Neither life nor death, right, nor any other power can separate us from the love of God. So we walk into those things with trepidation and sorrow and some fear, but overall we walk in knowing we walk into the hands of our God. To be a kingdom and priest then, right, is if you deeply know your love, you have the ability to stand before God because he has made the way for us and he invites us to make him known. And we'll do that in a variety and myriad sort of ways. We're going to do it um, because every time we say, will you forgive me, literally the walls of sin begin to peel back away from the end of the universe. And we say, what you did was wrong and hurtful, but I forgive you. Literally, right, the gates of hell get bent back a little bit further and somebody who's locked in sin experiences freedom. When we name the name of Jesus to somebody who has no hope, literally we're inviting um, the boundaries of death to be pushed back a little bit further and somebody gets to move into life. Every time, because of our love for Jesus, when we care for somebody who's hurting, when we pray for somebody who is sick, when we um, work against injustice in the world, a little bit of the darkness gets pushed back as Jesus' light is made a little bit brighter Right? Every time we live out our reality as a church, when you welcome and care for one another in this fellowship, right? we repudiate the principalities and powers which say it's really just about your comfort or about your own satisfaction or about your own sense of happiness when you minister out of your sorrow in order to give somebody a little hope. When we are a kingdom of priests, 
we literally bring the world before God in our prayers, and I'm thankful for the prayer that was prayed this morning, and we hold up the entire universe and say, Lord, this is not how you intend it. Will you change this so that you are glorified in every sphere of reality? Right? That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. We approach God unashamed and unafraid because of what Jesus Christ has done, and then we minister before God, holding up the needs and the sins and brokennesses of the world, and then we exit that place and we announce to the world that forgiveness is being offered, transformation has begun, and the Lord reigns. This is why at the end in Revelation, the whole of creation gathers in Revelation Five and proclaims and celebrates what Jesus has done. You have made all of us, not just the genetic people descended from Abraham, but every people from every nation, tribe, and language, and tongue to be this kind of people. We all have this privilege. And then as we do that, you can imagine why that would be a magnetic community, one that's distinctly set apart from God. The challenge, of course, is that we the church so often doesn't seem like it's been set apart for God. And if you watch all of the political conversation about what are evangelicals going to do and are they co-opted by this or that, you begin to realize we're so deeply identified with the wrong things. If we were to pursue our vocation to be a kingdom of priests, then we would use words like Forgive me and I forgive you with as great frequency as we talk about morality. Because in the end, the most enticing invitation to live moral lives is not a declaration of where the boundaries are, but to say, I know you will fail. And 70 times 7 times 7, I will forgive you. Right? We all know that. What causes us to aspire to moral purity is rarely... Um, somebody declaiming why it's so critical, it's the example of somebody who lives it with great transparency and love. For many of us, it's, we've been fortunate to have parents, right, who certainly spanked us at the beginning, certainly called us to account in the middle, but by the time we got older, what we saw is these are people who love Jesus, who've tried their hardest and failed frequently, asked for forgiveness uh, repeatedly, and received it from God, at least for me, when I see the saints that I aspire to become, it's not their sinlessness that attracts me. It's the fact that they've so been thoroughly, they've so thoroughly repented and been forgiven that they draw me to follow them more. What would it be for us to live out our vocation as God's treasured possession, people in whom he delights, to be a kingdom of priests who enters God's presence, and then makes God known, and then to be so distinct because we look like Jesus, forgiving those who wound us, proclaiming with um, absolute clarity and a lack of compromise or embarrassment God's truth and God's demands, and yet pointing insistently that the cross is the only way. Because, right, this is actually part of the problem for Israel, is that God says, look, if you'll obey me and do everything that I said, then I'll make you into this kind of people. And Israel, in the end, makes this kind of rash vow in verses 7 and 8. So Moses went back and summoned all the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord, and I suspect what God did was both laugh and weep at the same time at their bravado and hubris, right? 
I mean, let's acknowledge first what happens. The people accept what God offers. What's striking me is there's no negotiation here. They don't go, well, um, I like everything except that one section in what you're about to tell us, which really just is so problematic to us and painful, we don't want to do it, right? There's no negotiation involved. There are no terms from their end, like, that's fine. If we obey you and you do, and do that, you will do this for us. We'll become your treasured possession, a holy nation. But if you don't fulfill your promises to make us happy, wealthy, wiser, smarter, find parking if you're driving in Manhattan, like whatever it is those conditions are, our children will always be help, healthy and happy, then we will, right? There's no negotiation. This is a one unidirectional covenant. God is making an offer, and the only possible choice is to respond because we aren't negotiating partners with God. He's the sovereign Lord, and we are the grateful recipients of his grace. And so they just go, whatever you want, we're going to do. You saved us. You snatched us from doom on eagle's wings. How could we possibly deny you after we've experienced your goodness this way? But there is the problem, right, is that we know they've already failed once, multiple times, even up to this section of Exodus. The rest of the Old Testament is one long, brutally repetitious example of how they will continue to fail again. Unless we feel a little bit, you know, smug or holier than thou, um, I don't know about you, but every day of mine gives me adequate reminders that though I may want to say with the people of Israel, we will do everything the Lord has said. I can barely get out of bed in the morning before violating that. And if we cannot do what God has commanded, we often then fail to be who God has called us to be, and certainly we won't accomplish what he's accomplished us to do. Um, Therefore, right, it's good news that we're hearing this on Pentecost Sunday. Um, Because our failure is going to be true and unavoidable, cruelly and dully repetitive. But the invitation that Pentecost brings us is this. The Holy Spirit is at work. For those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, literally, it's hard to obey But decision by decision, moment by moment, inch of our heart by square inch of our heart, God is in the process of allowing us to say with more confidence and with more integrity and more hope, this area of my heart today I will give to you as well. I may take half of it back before the afternoon is over, but in this moment I will. And with every square inch, right, or for some of us every square millimeter, um, God is at work changing and redeeming us. Because the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. The Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, so increasingly we will manifest the fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control will be the inevitable fruit. Because the great thing about a tree or a fruit-bearing plant is that they put forth no actual um, intellectual effort of their own, but a healthy plant nourished in good soil inevitably produces fruit. And as the Holy Spirit works within us, we will inevitably begin to produce that fruit if we do not fight it. 
right? The Holy Spirit continues to pray in us when we no longer have words to pray for ourselves, when we are caught in our own sin or the pain and suffering of the world. As we groan, the Spirit groans with words that we do not have before the Father. The Spirit will intercede for us when we cannot intercede for ourselves. And when you look at the tremendous needs of the world around us, the relative smallness of our voice, the relative paucity of our influence, the fact that the church 50% of the time seems to be the problem rather than the solution. What we have great confidence is the gifts of the Holy Spirit continue to be active, allowing us to speak words of truth. Even if we say, I speak these out of faith, even though I have so little hope now, but I yet believe they are true and I will continue to say them, right? It allows us to hold out our hand and say, I am so sorry, I failed you, I did wrong, will you forgive me? I know I don't deserve it. I just need grace. The Holy Spirit pushes our hand out. And then God willing, the Holy Spirit causes the person we say that to to say, of course I forgive you. I've just been forgiven by God this morning for something I did. I won't withhold forgiveness from you. That when we say Jesus Christ is the only way to life and to truth and to hope, that people won't just go like, wow, that was just really put, that was a little inarticulate and wasn't as smooth as I would have hoped. But instead, when people hear that, what we know will happen is the Holy Spirit speaks through us is, I know it's your words, but I hear the voice of God behind that, inviting me to respond. We know that one day the church will stand before God. As a a bride waiting for its, her bridegroom. Perfect. Unashamed. Why? Because God promised it would be so in his covenants to the patriarchs, and he's fulfilling it in a way they could not imagine. And until that time, we have the great vocation of being a kingdom of priests before him. He's made the way for us to approach him, and he's made the way for us to proclaim who he is. And then we will exist to his glory to his honor, and to the extension of his kingdom forever. Let me pray for us.